0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Ford Motor Company CEO Jim Hackett joined the Washington Post to discuss how Ford is aiding in the fight against the coronavirus and the future of auto manufacturing in the U.S. Let's listen.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this morning's Washington Post Live conversation, uh, one of our series about leadership in crisis as we all together try to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest this morning is Jim Hackett, who's the chief executive officer of Ford Motor Company, one of America's industrial giants. He's been in that job since 2017. And Jim, you said uh, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, you never had a a lesson in pandemic planning, but uh, you've been having to to learn it and live it on the fly. I want to ask you about uh, where the company has been in these last weeks and then where you're going as you think about getting back to work. But let's start uh, with the situation that you were facing in March. Uh, the country is in a panic, desperate need for ventilators, uh, people uh, in hospitals, uh, people in the government are looking everywhere. And Ford stepped up at that time and in some ways as it did in past crises. And formed a partnership with other companies to get in the ventilator business. And just tell our viewers, take us back to March and what it felt like and uh, how you made that conversion.
0: Thank you, David. It's a real honor to be with you today. I've followed you for many years. And, you know, that moment, um, it's, it's, it seems uh, like a year ago, right? It's just days. And uh, at that time, uh, I was talking to uh, people in the White House about what was going to happen to our production so they understood as we were shutting down. And one thing led to another, and, and the reference to ventilators was just in the discussion, and I, I said, you know, maybe Ford ought to be building those for you. So that, that keyed uh, us in a direction. I had a, a contact, he's actually a friend, but a, a professional colleague at the Mayo Clinic, Nick LaRusso, who used to be head of internal medicine. We asked him to give us some guidance about if you were going to spend a dollar towards anything right now, where would you put it? And in fact, the ventilators were high on the list, but these surgical masks, these protective kind of things so that the virus couldn't penetrate the eyes uh, came high on the priority list. And so we started those in parallel. I'm most proud of, David, the fact it's hard to imagine this, but in two weeks, we actually had... Uh, prototypes designed and built of all the masks that we were going to make. We found a really teeny company that made like six ventilators a week that in two weeks we found this company. We started negotiations with Larry Culp's uh, GE Medical and it came together. And so most of the time after those first two weeks, everyone asked, hey, when will you have these? was getting the supply chain all geared up so that we could produce a uh, one of these almost every hour, and, and they were producing you know, one every other day. and So that's, so a,
1: that's a, it's a, it's a great story of, of flexibility and, and adaptation, but I want to drill down just a little bit. Uh, you're in the ventilator business now, uh, and in the, in the uh, mask business as well, but let's just take ventilators. Who, who are your customers? Who are you selling them to?
0: Well, that was interesting because like, I had a call from the governor of New York once it was, was known that we might be making these. We were talking to FEMA. We were talking to our local hospitals where, uh, of course, where we have lots of employees. And so that's, there's a lesson in this in that the distribution and the supply chains and everything were in chaos. Again, Ford has a lot of skill in coordinating that. So where we are today. We distribute uh, the ventilators to state governments, as well as to FEMA, and uh, everything's flowing really well, frankly.
1: But to focus on that, one impression we've had watching this is that maybe there could have been a little better coordination at the federal level as this process ramped up. States were competing for ventilators, trying to go to this one and that one. Is, would that be one of the lessons for you as a takeaway that, that we could use a little better coordination at the start?
0: Well, clearly, like I said in the analyst call this week, no one had a business plan called pandemic. But, but I know the reference you're making, which is business continuity. Every plan in the future will have a chapter on pandemic management. I was in a business roundtable call listening to the government uh, executive high ranking and, and the reference he made was, you know, it goes, oh, we, we, when we have a crisis in the United States, it's usually regional. We never have all states calling at once. They kind of think of us like Amazon. I hung up the phone and said, that's the design of the kind of response we need in the future, something that's instantaneous, distributed across the country very quickly.
1: So let me ask you, you're, you've geared up big time to produce ventilators, it seems, thank goodness, that the need for ventilators is not so overwhelming as we feared back in in March. As we flattened the curve, uh, our hospitals aren't crashing out. Have you now got an oversupply of ventilators more than your customers are going to need? And are you going to switch to producing something else that's uh, of of important value for us now in this phase of the crisis?
0: Well, clearly the research is showing that Many of these people on ventilators are dying of blood clots, frankly. And, um, and so that intubation and not moving is, is compounding the risk for that. So it's not clear yet whether they don't need the augmenting support for breathing. So I think there's still a really important need for ventilators. We, everybody's interest right now is to get the stockpiles back up such that if we ever have any kind of pulmonary challenge, we're gonna have ventilators. And there's enough demand around the world that we we think we'll be busy all year building these. But I do see, uh, as you suggest, that the shift now is going to other kinds of things, uh, particularly in the protective gear. And we've added gowns, for example, in the mix of things that we're making.
1: So, uh, Jim, one more question before we turn to Ford and Ford's business going forward. As you've been in this conversion phase and and, and making ventilators and other things that are not part of your normal production, how have you kept your workers safe on the production lines? How have you given them enough distance that they can come to work and feel that they're not putting their lives at risk?
0: Well, David, you know, the, the, the answer to that is actually the hint for how we're going to turn the country back on, because we had to design... Uh, for, for employee safety in an extreme way from viruses for anybody to come back. We asked for volunteers. It was oversubscribed in terms of people who wanted to come back in service of others. It touched, touched Bill and my heart, you know, to see so many people. So there's, there's division of uh, distance. There's protective gear. But the biggest uh, requirement is a screening system. That to get in the building, you have to go through thermal imaging, You have to fill out a questionnaire and you have to do that every day. Eventually, and we're working just as hard on this as we were building the ventilators, there needs to be a testing protocol and and that's going to have the country have a lot more confidence for things like sporting events and that will be sooner than I think people believe that a testing protocol will ease some of this
1: tension. So So taking Ford as an example, Would you expect uh, over the course of the next uh, few months uh, or as you ramp up production again of vehicles that you'd have testing uh, of your employees as part of that so that employees at work would be comfortable knowing that nobody infected was working on the shop floor with them? Uh, Is is that going to be part of your uh, regimen, do you think?
0: I think it's... Uh, It is in the future, and the way we're talking to the UAW and around the world to to our labor groups, particularly, and the reason this is all people, right? If you work in an office, this is going to be primarily important. The factories are going to be the first things to turn on in the auto industry, so that's why it's getting all the focus. And the idea is to give confidence to the community that somebody is there safely next to them. And there's ways to do that with testing in the future. There's ways to put signaling maybe on a wristband. We actually, as Bill talked about in the 60 minutes piece, are using proximity devices right now just to help people know uh, distance. And then finally, there's six work streams going on in the company around contact tracing. Uh, You know probably about the Apple and Google uh, experiment, but there's five other things that have a lot of promise that essentially, that's the issue is if the infection rate stays below one, the exponential force downward means that the, the virus will flame out. If it starts to go over one, we need to know where everybody's been. And we're going to have a much better handle on that in just a short time.
1: And on things like this, a very uh, sophisticated, carefully planned regime of, of testing and, and uh, other, other things you just discussed, Are you coordinating that with any particular part of the federal government?
0: Well, I think it'd be safe to say that we did the design of it by ourselves. In fact, I want to tell you, this is a story. Washington Post will want to write this story about the standards that are now being created for workers uh, like the people that go back and forth. We have a 70-page playbook that we've put together. I mean, we're planning down to the granular level. We're making 3 million face masks because we're taking care of all the frontline responders. We're making 3 million face masks for our own company. Uh, we don't have 3 million people. It's because they will be, you know, disposed and have to be, uh, you know, re-outfitted. So we, we put that together and then we have shared that. You know, we've made that kind of open information to any company that wants to know about how to put this together so that you ensure people are safe. It's the primary uh, focus of building confidence in people coming back to work, that they're safe.
1: Oh, well, I, I know if you wanted to share that 70-page booklet with one of our reporters, <laughs> we would as it, as make good use of it. Uh, but I, I take it that this is, as you say, it's really happening company by company. You're not being told from the top down what to do. You're, you're figuring it out and then sharing that knowledge with, with other companies.
0: That's right. And I want to draw a parallel for you because this is my 26th year, you know, running a company. Uh, I also served as a chairman of a bank board. So I've been through four banking or four crises like this. This is unlike any that I've been through. But I'll tell you that when you have an enemy, you can't see a virus. Uh, There's actually a proxy for this in the history of business. When you had something you couldn't see that you cared about, which was quality, it was. We tried to measure it but you couldn't see it in the earliest days of industry and you knew that it mattered. So standards emerged out of that from the Ballridge award that you know heightened uh, awards for it to later the ISO structures. These were configurations of practices that everyone had to adhere to and you were audited to. Uh, I suspect this will happen now with pandemic management and viruses that everyone will have to adhere to a standard it will it will follow the development as, as you're suggesting
1: well that's some clarity from a from a business leader I with, uh, that's one of my takeaways I mean turned uh, Jim to the impact uh, of this lockdown shutdown of our of our global economy on you, on your company you just reported your first quarter earnings and boy it was a, a tough see a red ink Um, I think the number that you reported was something like uh, uh, loss pre-tax of 632 million, which was even more than you had feared it might be. Uh, And if I read the numbers right, you said the effect of the pandemic on your business was to take about $2 billion out of uh, what would have been your profitability. So uh, first, your stock price has taken a beating. It's about half of what it was uh, a year ago. What do you see uh, ahead you're, you're facing a second quarter that I'm assuming is going to be even rougher than the first quarter but just to the extent you can as a publicly traded company give us a picture of what's ahead
0: well some color for the audience though on Ford as you think about that performance you know it takes about 36 months to develop a vehicle it's three years before that it's in consideration so think of brand new vehicles are five to six years in gestation so we we were launching. We are launching a Mustang electric Mustang in the fall, and that's that's projected in our future. Uh, we have a. We're, we've talked about a new Bronco family that's coming out, a new F-150. In my tenure in the company, we had the oldest product line in recent memory at Ford. It really hadn't been redone since the middle part of the last decade. So. This is a big moment for us. 90% of the portfolio is going to be brand new. We just don't have the revenues from that to show. So Wall Street's been a little challenging because they wonder when we're going to show up. But we've been sharing with them the product portfolio, all brand new, hang in there. It's going to be really great. And the pandemic hits. Now, in this quarter, what primarily is happening, and this is you saw this in the financial uh, industry, David, is... You're taking advanced charges for the probability of default in loans with employment now, you know, what is it, 25, 30 million people, unemployment, pardon me, uh, there's a a prospective increase in uh, charges. So we pull that forward. And what we said is that if we didn't have the pandemic, of course, doesn't matter really, but if we didn't, the company was going to beat expectations for the quarter. And as I'm saying, we were setting up for these future product launches. So I was I'm really optimistic about Ford's future. Now, in the face of this, to your to your direct question, there's still more effect because for all intents and purposes, 97 facilities, and they're not all assembly plants, but mostly factories, have been turned off. Some of our parts depots with safe practices have been working so that we can improve and fix vehicles for security and safety. My belief is that demand will come back fairly well even in the face of the unemployment challenges because we saw what happened in China and that's what's happening there.
1: So uh, I'm curious whether you as a company have taken advantage of any of the uh, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that have been made available Uh, for recovery. Are are you are you receiving any uh, loans or or cash grants to get you through?
0: Well, this is a moment of pride frankly because I wasn't here, but I'm really proud of Bill Ford and later Alan Mulally. So in 06, 08 remember the industry almost goes bankrupt. In fact, it's hard to track because the non-American companies were being bailed out by their governments and they never declared bankruptcy. Ford uh, d- didn't ask for a bailout, it restructured itself, it borrowed, it leveraged everything, including the Blue Oval, and it paid all that money back, and, you know, an extraordinary story. We learned from that, so our balance sheet was really boosted going into this problem. There's a revolver, as you know, which means if you get into trouble, these are loans you've structured you can take. Those are, you know, uh, commercial loans, those aren't from the government. We took those. And then last week we floated, um, uh, we took $8 billion in additional debt just through the public markets. It was way oversubscribed. I don't want to share the number, but it would, it would blow you away in, in terms of how big the book was. So it, it told me and Bill the confidence that the people that you know, invest in the company have in it. So right now, we've said to Wall Street that if we didn't turn factories on the whole year, we'd have enough on the balance sheet to stay here. But I, I wanna sneak in one other big promise. I'm trying not to lay off anybody. In fact, I, I know that this can even sound foolish in some respects, right? But I've been through four of these and the, the biggest trust you can build is with your employees. Who wants to send somebody out of work you know, when there's a virus and there's no employment. So we're trying to, trying to balance this on the head of a pin. If we can turn the economy back on like we're talking about, I think employment at Ford is safe and uh, our earnings can, can start to improve.
1: So let's uh, t- turn to the question of you reopening your f- factories. It's the issue the country really is now trying to get its, its mind around. I should just note, as you've referred in our conversation to Bill, I'm assuming that's William Ford, who's your chairman. Yeah, um, and,
0: he's,
1: a partner. And, yeah. he's a great So, guy. Uh, Jim, as you, as you think about reopening plants, Volkswagen in Germany got reopened on Monday. Uh, Bentley in the UK is going to start uh, making cars again, I think, next week. What the, is your own plan for actually reopening, uh, resuming production of vehicles in North America.
0: Well, I need to sneak in because in parallel we have nine facilities in in Europe, and we're turning all those on in a in a, in a sequence way, starting May fourth. Uh, we have a Ford used to have a joint venture with Mazda that still has a vestige of a relationship in Thailand in a facility that's actually been turned on. We've never had a problem uh, with with the recurrence of the virus, we're doing all the protocols. And so the governor uh, of Michigan uh, extended uh, our shelter in place to May 15th, which is a Friday. So uh, if we could turn on May 18th, that would be the first time we'd be allowed to. We've asked for kind of an, an, an investment by the government to let us start to stage materials. I mean, we're talking about five to 800 truckloads of materials, David, that have been sitting waiting to get flowed into factories that start to uh, generate production that can't move. And because those aren't as dense from a people perspective, we think it's okay with forklift drivers to have a truck back up and let's start putting things in the factory that won't involve people being next to each other. Can we start that sooner than later? And so that's what we're trying to do right now.
1: So we should look for May 18 as the possible beginning of your return to production in Michigan and and elsewhere. Uh, And I'm assuming that you'll be using these same rules to keep your workers safe and that you'll you'll be confident that through testing, through uh, social distance at work, all the other things we've talked about, you'll have a safe, safe workforce when you come back.
0: Yeah, the issue with me saying that's the date is there's a lot of constituencies that have to come along. You know, uh, we're working really closely with the UAW. We have an extraordinary leader there in Rory Gamble. I really like him. I think he's very broad-minded thinking about what's good for his employees, what's good for the economy. And so we're having regular dialogues with them. And then, of course, we have the government who's looking in parallel at, at statistical data like we are. I mean, the key in this is that the infection rate getting below one means the probability and risks are no more, in my mind, than other risks you have if you were, if you were walking out in the middle of a thunderstorm and lightning was there. You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things we've got to say to ourselves is that eventually, because it's still here, we're going to have to deal with some measure of risk, but nothing in our mind that would threaten the vitality of a human if that happens. If there was a signal that somebody was going to you know get sick or that we found somebody sick we have a plan to move very quickly now so that we isolate and, and corral that so
1: that we can keep things open this time. So uh, Jim we've reached the uh, uh, point at which uh, I know you need to, to leave to go do other things like run Ford Motor Company. Um, I I just want to leave you uh, with one uh, last quick question. You've got a reputation because of your years running Steelcase, uh, an office furniture company that uh, had a lot of problems, as a turnaround artist uh, for for businesses. And I want to ask you whether in the wake of this terrible pandemic that we're living through, you think there's a chance for a turnaround for America, where we get started on a different basis with better organization, better rules, better sense in how we manage things? What do you think?
0: You know, David, when I was younger in business, I saw like leverage buyout CEOs. I I, I never was proud of how they would go in and slash and burn a company. I actually think of myself as a redesign of business. So I think of because both of these companies are family. Uh, closely held public companies, Steelcase and Ford, they own on a very long arc, you know, over hundreds of years. And what I've suggested is that what happens to the companies over time, the design isn't fit anymore. Uh, For example, we're finding that there's more online interest in buying vehicles this time because that's all people could do in China now that they're turned back on. Uh, with dealers, so that's a design issue. Shouldn't surprise anybody when you think of us. As it relates to the country, there's so much opportunity now because we have to think more intently about being productive. I've been was on a call this morning saying that when you when you're at home and you're away from your body of work, how is it that we were actually able to stay as productive as we were? In fact, I've been surprised at Ford, but for the factories being turned off how productive we've been. And so that's the opportunity in the country is that we now can compete anywhere in the world because of our ability to do knowledge work the way we're doing it, which means the speed in which you can innovate a product like a ventilator, that that translates to vehicles. The speed in which you can understand what users need. There's a ponytail problem in these masks (laughs) that have air moving in them. Our people discover that before others. Uh, we can discover issues in your vehicle that are driving you crazy because of a D.Ford is the name of our design-centered entity. And then finally, you know, we learned how much in decision-making and working with each other that being on this system like you and I are, we can have really deep discussions but be focused, make a decision, and move on. So I think there's there's just a great story here how the countries thrive in the face of this challenge.
1: Well, Jim Hackett, we want to thank you for being with us, for sharing so much of your experience at Ford. I think it's been helpful for all of us, a lot of takeaways for businesses and workers all over the country. Uh, I want to remind folks that we'll be back on Monday at 11 with my colleague Bob Costa. who will be interviewing Jane Rosenthal, who's the head of the Tribeca Film Festival, who's going to talk about the future of the entertainment business, which we need more than ever. Uh, these days as we're trying to uh, keep our spirits up and and think about getting back to work. Again, thank you very much to Jim Hackett, the CEO of of Ford Motor Company, and thanks everybody for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for
0: listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.